Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Welcome back to the FemiPod for episode number 72. I'm here, of course, with Lids, and today we're joined by the incredible Femi strength expert, Bex Atwell. Bex has been coaching the Femi athletes in the gym to personal bests, to beat injuries, and to be the strongest they've ever been. We are so lucky to have a mind like Bex's on the team. Bex is not only a weapon athlete herself, but she is studying towards her PhD in sports science, which is titled Optimizing Health and Performance for Elite Female Athletes through improved athlete and coach knowledge of the menstrual cycle. Apart from this, she also runs her own nutrition and strength training business called BexFit. We are so excited to chat to Bex today. Bex, how are you? And what's been happening down in Christchurch? Hi, yes. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Um, It's been raining down in Christchurch, so I have been tucked up inside, not doing much, but I've got a long run tomorrow. So I'm hoping that the rain will pass today. Yeah, I feel like we were just speaking about how the weather is terrible everywhere at the moment. So I feel like we're all in it together. Vex, we know that you've been involved in sport for a long time now. And as you just mentioned, you are a runner too. Can you tell us what got you into sport as a young woman and what has sport done for you? Um, so I get asked this question quite a bit and I was always active when I was really little. I honestly think my mom just kept me busy to keep me out of trouble. So I danced, I did swimming, I did athletics, I played soccer. Um, I would just basically do anything to be active. And then once I got to high school, sport was compulsory. So I found it really cool that we just got to spend all this extra time hanging out with our friends and doing sports. So I got really into running when I was at high school and I did get a little bit more serious about it. And that's when I probably spent a lot of time, um, I guess, like focusing and setting some goals and actually really embracing what sport can be about. And I just loved it. I got to go on so many trips with my friends every year. We'd go to cross country and um, secondary school at road race nationals and we got to win a quite a few medals so that was definitely my first kind of introduction into competitive sport um, and then once I kind of left high school I gave up on running and was just like I'm never doing that again and then I got into strength and more weightlifting stuff I did bodybuilding just because I felt like I was missing that competitive edge or competitive part of my life um, and then after that, I kind of have got back into running now, but definitely like throughout my life, I think sport has always brought me some really good friends. It's brought some amazing friendships and it's brought a lot of like enjoyment and fun to my life as well. Um, and yeah, it also gave me a lot of confidence when I was younger, especially when, you know, times are tough. I know that if I can go out and go for a run, I'm always going to feel better about myself um, and yeah, really focus on feeling good about myself and what I can achieve. Love it. Yeah. Sport is the best. And I always laugh when you tell me that you're a steeplechaser because I feel like that's literally the scariest sport there is no there's definitely scarier sports probably but you got to be brave to jump over those water jumps I think I was just good at it because I'd get bored running around the track so at least like because I had the hurdles I could focus like between and I'd actually managed to I think my steeplechase best time over 2k was faster than my 2k flat just because I actually had something to focus on rather than just like getting distracted and like looking at what was going on around the track I love it there you go you just need you need sport that's got things thrown in there keep you on your toes <laughs> yeah definitely alongside your running like you obviously have a massive passion for strength training and gym-based work 
Why are you so passionate about strength training? Um, so when I was about 12, my mum was giving me a back massage and realized that my spine was quite curved. Um, so we kind of went down the path of figuring out what that was. I got diagnosed with scoliosis. I'm pretty sure I was around 12 or 13 years old or maybe 14. I just started high school and I saw a bunch of different physios and a bunch of different people. And they all were like, no, don't train, like don't lift weights, don't do anything. You've got to stop running. Um, and that really impacted me a lot, I, but in the end, I kind of was like, actually stuff this, like, I'm going to go against what you said and I'm going to keep running. Um, and I wish that I had someone back then to be like, actually strength training can be really good for your scoliosis. So once I got a little bit older and I think once I stopped running, um, I started having a lot more back issues and that's kind of when I got a lot deeper into the strength training side of things. Um, and that's kind of my passion for it. Like I had a lot of injuries. I get a lot of, lot of niggles because like my shoulders don't move properly. My back's quite stiff. Um, my hips don't function the same. Um, so I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how I can improve that and fix that. Um, and then being able to take that knowledge and experience and share it with other people, particularly in the gym. Most, so many people have sore lower backs or they can't run because they get sore knees and being able to be like, actually, let's do the strength work, giving them some exercises, coaching them through it, and then seeing improvements in that pain and, you know, getting people back out running, doing things they love doing. That's definitely like what really got me deep and passionate into it and loving just figuring out how the human body works and how all the different muscles work and being able to kind of tailor that to different people. Um, and then on top of that, as I guess probably further on, like more the recent years, working with women and just seeing how empowering it can be getting women lifting heavy because so many women are scared, like you don't want to get bulky or, you know, strength training's not for me, but that's something that we can do. It takes a lot of work to actually build muscle. So just, especially some of the run, you know, the Femi running girls that I coach, just seeing them get stronger in the gym and go from, oh my gosh, Bex, I don't know what to do in the gym. Like I'm scared to go into the gym at all to being like, actually, I'm going to go in it, going to go in. I'm going to use the squat rack. I'm using the big barbell. I'm using the big plates. There's no other girls in here, but I felt strong and I felt good. Um, and that just really like jeez me up. I love, yeah, just seeing that progress in people um, and impacting people's lives through strength training. Oh my gosh, I couldn't relate to that more. Like I feel like strength training for me is something that I I don't look forward to. Like I don't really enjoy going to the gym and being in a room and lifting weights, but the feeling you get walking out is like so incredible. You do feel so empowered in your body. I feel like it comes from, yes, actually building strength and doing the workout, but also going into a very male dominated space. And I think for a lot of women, they find like gyms quite intimidating. Mm. I definitely do. And like feeling like you've overcome that challenge, like is another way to feel so empowered in yourself. So yeah, I don't love it, but I know the benefits of it. And we obviously talk about strength training a lot at Femi and how incredible it is for runners. Can you talk us through the benefits of doing strength training alongside a running program? Um, yeah, definitely. So the first one that people probably know most about is injury prevention. So building strength and building up those stability muscles. Running is obviously quite high impact every time you're taking a step, especially when you're running at high speeds, like you can be putting up to eight times your body weight through one leg at a time. So if you're not doing any type of strength training, that kind of impact can be really, really hard on your body. And if you don't have the muscle capacity to land every stride and to slow you down or to brace that impact, then you're going to be putting so much pressure on your joints and on those smaller ligaments and tendons. So building up more strength in your muscles can mean that you are actually able to prevent injuries from over, like from doing a lot of running. Um, and then also it improve, you can improve your technique. 
So if you improve the way that your body moves in the gym, that is going to transfer into your running. If you get more powerful through your legs or through your hips, you're going to be able to move forwards further every time you stride. And it's also going to preserve energy for later on when you're running. So if you learn to build up your core strength in the gym and then you go to run, you're going to be able to have a lot stronger core. So you're not going to fatigue as quickly along a run. So you'll actually have more energy to be able to like run faster later on in a race and so yeah I think that's a really important one as well people are just like oh it's just preventing injuries but there's so much more to it and you can get so much more out of your running by building strength on the side as well so many benefits yeah it's like do you want to be a better runner strength train because you can avoid injuries and you can get faster like the best things ever I um know for a fact both Lids and I have healed injuries because of strength training and are able to continue running at a higher level and running really big mileage and the only way that we can physically do that is because we go to the gym we would 100% be injured if we we, we weren't doing it so anyone listening get out there and get to the gym uh we know like women are super busy and I know that a lot of us struggle to fit in getting to the gym what's the minimum amount of sessions a week someone could do to actually see benefit and like what's the ideal number if someone has the time to do so yeah, definitely. So one session a week is better than none, obviously. Uh, I always try and recommend and get all the running girls to be doing between two and three, but it depends on how much running load you're doing and what else you've got, you know, how how busy your life is um, outside of running. Um, definitely you don't want to overdo it and you don't want it to impact your running sessions because if you're going into a running session and you're sore because you've just trained or you've just done your weights, then that's going to impact your running. You're actually going to be at higher risk of injury. And if you're not able to recover from all of the sessions, I think that's more something that you need to consider than you know the minimum number of sessions. If you can't recover from that many sessions, you're not going to be getting the benefits out of it. You're not going to recover. So you may as well drop the sessions down and do one or two rather than two or three, because that way you are recovering and you're going to be able to get the most out of your run sessions and your strength sessions. Um, and then obviously a lot of the time I work with a lot of girls that end up injured. So they're doing less running for a period of time. We can increase their strength sessions for that. And then they're still doing a good load, but we can change the focus of their training. So I know it's an annoying answer. It depends, but I feel like no matter what you ask me, my answer is always going to be like, it depends because there's so many factors that you can, you need to consider. There's never like one size fits all. Um, and it's really important to consider and like work with a coach and talk about what you're actually, what your focus is and what your goal is and what you can recover from and actually fit into your lifestyle. Yeah, I love that. And this also might be a bit of an annoying question, but for me, I personally find, as I said, going to the gym challenging and going and thinking I need to go spend an hour or so in the gym feels like a lot of time out of my day on top of everything else. So what I try to do to like convince myself to go, I'm like, I'm just going to go there and do 15 or 20 minutes because it's better than nothing. And then by the time you get there and you've done 15 or 20 minutes, you're almost motivated to do more um, because you're already in the space. But what actually makes up a good gym session for a runner? How much time do we actually need to be spending in the gym to kind of get enough out of it? That's actually such a good point, Liz. And with you saying that you go to the gym, I do the same with my running. I'm like, hey, I only have to run for five minutes. And then once I get out and I've done five minutes, I'm like, okay, I can stay out. I've warmed up. It's not so bad. Um, so you can, I can definitely stay in the gym for hours. But yeah, running is a different, 
different story. So with a good gym session for someone who's running, definitely, I think it's really, really important to incorporate really like specific corrective exercises and that kind of warm up. Um, so if you're, if you've only got time to do 10 to 15 minutes, I would be mainly focusing on the exercises that you need, or say you've got, you know, niggly knees, you need to focus on exercises that are going to build up that knee strength. Um, that's going to be in that kind of beginning, get you warmed up, get you moving, getting you feel good. Then it's really important to stick to the big compound lift. So you want to be really working. So say in the A series, you want to be working exercises that hit a lot of um, muscle groups. So that's things like um, deadlifts, squat variations, bench press and pull-ups for the upper body or rows. Um, and these ones are really important because you're learning to coordinate your body. Or I recommend you stay away from kind of bodybuilding exercises when you're focusing on running strength because you're not trying to isolate your muscles. You actually want your body to work in sync. You want all your body parts to work together. So I'd always start with a big A series. So that might be, you might do a squat and pair that with a bench press. Again, with my run, I always put the pair exercises together like upper and lower because you're saving time and it also means that your legs can rest a little bit longer while you're doing the upper body exercise. Um, once you have, oh, for those, for that A series, the reps, and I would always stay a little bit lower. So you're really focusing on strength and rest is really important. I know a lot of runners don't like strength training because you have to sit still and you have to recover between the sets and everyone just wants to go, go, go and get their heart rates up. Um, but you want to really focus on quality over quantity. So something that is, um, yeah, lots of muscles, big compound lifts for that first ex first couple of exercises and then working on accessory work so accessory stuff is usually lunges more dumbbell work a little bit more stability stuff um, so there's always with running it's a big focus on the lower body because you obviously need to get your legs stronger a lot of the time I try and focus as well on hip extension which is really good for that leg uh, that stride length and trying to power off that back leg so that's going to be hip thrusts single leg hip thrusts lots of those kind of exercises and then the last couple of exercises, if you've still got time, is when you can be doing a little bit more high rep work. And that's when you can incorporate some more isometric stuff. So really targeting some smaller muscle groups that might improve your posture. So maybe some smaller muscles through your back. Um, and that's when I'd always put in some more calf work as well. Calf stuff is really important for running because you really need to build up your calves. Um, but on that, because you do technically doing lots of calf raises when you're running, you actually want to make sure you're going quite heavy in the gym when you're doing your calf raises so that you are actually really actually forcing those adaptations where if you're just doing lots of body weight calf raises, you're technically doing that every day when you're walking. So you do want to make it a little bit harder to really build that strength. And then you can also incorporate some plyometric work. Again, if you've got, this is kind of like the main exercises, hit your big lifts first, get some lunges in, get some single leg work, um, and then get some core. And then if you've got the time, you can start incorporating some plyometric work, which is like your box jumps, your depth drops, things like that. Um, but I think one thing where people go wrong is that they change it up too often. So say you're just trying to get stronger in the gym for your running, pick a few exercises. You might pick a front squat, um, a reverse lunge, a bench press and something else like for your core, say a plank. Stick to those for a few weeks and just try and progress as much as you can and then change it up. So often you get people being like, oh, I'm bored. Like I want to change exercises. And there's actually so much more potential that they can get from sticking to those same exercises. So you don't need to be doing anything like fancy or over the top. You just want to be consistent with it and stick to those same really basic but focused exercises um, along the way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was a great answer, Vex. Like I feel like anyone listening could actually take that and go and create 
something for themselves and they're running right now. So yeah, that was awesome. So much information. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about menstrual cycle and strength training. What does the research tell us about strength training and the implications of the menstrual cycle within strength training? Like, are there ways women should maximize the benefits alongside their cycle? And like, what can they do to, yeah, get the most out of their strength training alongside their menstrual cycle? So currently we're in a very exciting time. This is probably more recently is when there's more research that's been coming out and people are actually focusing on the ways that we can improve and get the most out of female athletes. So in research, if you go back years and years, it's all been done on males. And so all the basic principles and stuff have actually just been proven on males and they do work for females. But as we know through Femi, all those hormones is going to be are changing throughout the cycle. Um, and so that's what a lot of the research is coming out now. They're actually looking at interventions and putting things into place to be like, okay, well, we could actually do more strength training at this time of the month compared to that time of the month. Um, and see what kind of benefits they get. Currently, it's all not theoretical, like it's definitely evidence-based, but no one's actually gone and done full long-term training cycles. But what the research is showing us is that women can actually focus and train harder with their strength training in the first couple of weeks of their cycle and then back off in the second couple of weeks. So that might that might mean actually resting and not doing as much strength training, or it might just mean do, changing it up and doing higher reps. So the way that I coach the, my female athletes is that we will do low reps, high intensity, and intensity does not mean like high intensity interval training, like you might do in circuit training. High intensity, when I'm talking about weights, is using really heavy weights. So we go low reps, high weights, and long rest periods. That's going to be the most nervous system taxing um, type of strength training, but that's what your body is most prepared to recover from during the first couple of weeks, during that follicular phase. And then after ovulation, so ovulation is also a really, really good time. There's a peak in testosterone, which means that you've got a really good chance of hitting some heavy weights, PBing in those weights and really challenging your body in the strength department, but also being able to recover from it. Once you get into the luteal phase, your body's not as capable of recovering. It's needing all your body reserves to get yourself, get your body ready for menstruation. It's building up that uterus lining. And so that's a really good time to reduce the intensity. Often if people are still wanting to train, and I do recommend it, you're doing more single leg stuff. You're doing more balance work. You're doing more core stuff. And the reps are normally higher. So we normally do that more like endurance work or rehabby stuff in that second half. And we kind of try and stay away from the plyometric work just because with the different, with what's going on in the body, um, it is, you're a little bit higher risk for injuries. And then the, on top of that as well, I always talk about recovery. So during your luteal phase, say if you are in a team sport or you don't have that option to change your training, you can just focus on recovering more to help your body support and get through that second half of the cycle. Yeah, that's so good. I love that breakdown. I think that helps so much. And honestly, like I'm someone who has done the same gym workout every time I go to the gym for the past like four or five years. <laughs> But I do really play into how I feel when I walk into the gym. And if I feel really good, I tend to go for like really heavy and less reps. And then when I'm not feeling so good, I always bring it back um, in terms of weight and just like do more reps. But now I think about it, it's definitely playing into my cycle as well. And my obviously my energy levels are all synced. So um, I think that helps so much. And I'm, so, I'm sure so many of the, the listeners now are probably thinking about, oh yeah, like, when I tried to lift really heavy that time, I was actually in my luteal phase and my hormones were really high and hence why it felt way harder than it should. 
Um, but it's such a good approach because we talk about obviously adapting our training to our our running training to our cycle all of the time, but thinking about like layering on top of that, your strength training to make sure it's right for you at the right time is so important too. We also know you're super passionate about nutrition and about food. And I'm sure all three of us and all of our listeners can agree that many women struggle with fad diets and knowing actually what to put in their bodies. Why do you think the industry is so confusing for women today? Um, I don't think the media helps at all, especially social media influencers who've got like zero training or no legit knowledge about nutrition, but they look good. So people want to know what they're doing um, and they want to look like that. And then also with the media, like they don't know how to read research properly. So they might take out snippets from research that comes out and then put it as a headline. And then people are buying into that, but not actually understanding what I guess the consequences are or what the rest of the research says or what the kind of weaknesses or limitations in that research are as well. Um, and going back to the, like the social media influences and stuff, like they've often just got good genetics or they're doing a really good job at justifying or hiding their disordered eating. Um, I do, I find it, it's so, honestly, it drives me mental. Like there's that one girl that ate bananas and that was all she ate for like days and days and days. And I've had people come to me being like, you know, she did this, like, but then someone else is telling you not to eat fruit. And it's just so much conflicting evidence. And then you get someone that might have abs or looks good, but you've got no idea about what their health is. Like, I really think things would be so different if there was an easy way to tell if someone was getting a regular period. Like, you, if you could just tell that some influencer was not like getting their cycle regularly, you wouldn't want to follow them, but there's no way to know that. Um, so I definitely think if we could like actually, you know, if you had like a pink dot on your forehead or something, like <laughs> it would definitely change how we, who follows who or like what, what influences you get information from. Um, and unfortunately, like, yeah, we can't see how healthy someone is from the health from the outside until their health deteriorates significantly. So we often get stuck falling for terrible advice from people who don't know any better. Um, and then I think that's why it makes it so confusing because there's so many people saying different things and most of the people as well are trying to sell you something. So, so you know, the people that get popular, they'll be saying they're doing it because, you know, an eight week challenge before and after is sexy. It's exciting, but no one's talking about kind of like the after after photo um, and then also with research, again, like most of it's all done on males. It's not done with female hormones taken into consideration. So it might work the first time someone tries to lose weight or yeah, like the first time they try to go on a diet, but there's actually longer term consequences of trying to do that and trying to repeatedly do that, which is when, which it doesn't get talked about, unfortunately, until people are really sick or they're in hospital. hospital. Um, and I think there's also... Within that too, there's a big gap between there's people that are getting diagnosed with eating disorders and then there's the healthy, but there's this massive spectrum in the middle of disordered eating that is people are kind of getting away with or justifying and it's still not healthy. And that is why like so many women are looking at these people and they're like, oh, well, she, you know, she overtrains and she does all this and she's fine, but we don't know that she's fine. Um, and it's easy to buy into without realizing or understanding kind of what's going on in the background. I feel like a lot of those women, though, don't even realize that they're suffering from disordered eating themselves. I know for, for so long, I didn't realize I had disordered eating behaviors. And once I hit rock bottom and got really unwell and suffered from reds, I obviously had to make a change. But it wasn't really until we brought Sarah on, our dietitian, when she explained to us what these eating disordered behaviors 
looked like and like what actually went through your mind at particular times if you were eating something you know that maybe you deemed as unhealthy and what you thought about that um it wasn't until then my my eyes actually opened to be like wow I I was like deep in disordered eating behaviors without, without even knowing it so unfortunately on social media in particular these women who like from the outside look really fit and healthy um, are potentially suffering without knowing it, which is really sad. And that's why education is just so important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think one thing as well, like a big part of it is just this historic narrative that the female body has just been so sexualized and objectified. Like even in sport when, you know, it's, I think I wrote, talked about this in my master's last year, but about five, only 5% 5 of sports in the media is of women. And when you actually look at it, most of the time, it's not focusing on how athletic these women are, but it's focusing on how attractive they are. If you look at, you know, all the female athletes that are in the media, it's the pretty ones. It's the ones, you know, it's, we're just, we're so missing the point of supporting women in sport. Like even with women's sports uniforms, like it's really hard to not worry about what you look like when you've got no choice, but to be put in these tiny skirts, which are so impractical. Like there's just so much through history that's narrated or has the storyline of like what women should be. Um, and it's hard to break that. And another thing with my master's research as well that I was speaking about is that so often women, we can justify that we have a good body image because we just look at how it functions. And I think that's amazing. I think it's awesome that we look at how our body functions and learn to love it. But like the dad bod was literally a thing. Whereas the mum, a mum bod is like getting a bikini body back after you've had a baby. Like it's so messed up. Men can love, you know, men don't even care. Whereas we're so ingrained to worry about that and do things to fix it or have to justify it. And yeah, I think that's a big, it's so frustrating. And I'm, and I like that it's changing slowly, but there's definitely a long way to go. Yeah. Such good points. It's going to be a very hard fix to attempt to change the obsession with the way that we look and how that um, impacts our decision-making and the actions that we take. Like, I think if I'm being completely honest, there's still, and I know that we talk about this a fair bit, there's still days where I look at my body and I'm like, you know, that's, that's not a runner's body or something will go through my head, but I have the awareness now to understand that I am a runner regardless of like my body shape. And like, I know, cause I've been through it, so much with like food that food fuels me and without it I won't be a good runner so like I have that awareness but like with yeah like you said with the history of of sexualizing women and then social media intertwined and unfortunately there is still a massive market for attractive certain body types on in Instagram and TikTok that are the most praised and um they do promote things like what I eat in a day and they have a huge following of young girls that, you know, look at that and are influenced. So yeah, huge problem to fix, but one that we're trying to attempt slowly to break down together as a group. I think we're doing a good job so far. Um, and I think the fact that we can talk about it as well and be honest with those thoughts that still come up, like you said, like we all have those thoughts and we all have those feelings of oh if I did this I'd feel better about myself but to be able to work through that and talk about it then I think that's what's going to really help make change in the long term as well because like you know, we don't look at our friends and be like oh if she lost five kilos I'd like her better but that's what we say about ourselves but because we don't talk about it you don't think that part you know you don't think it all the way through and yeah I think just that communication and the more that we can talk to other women and be like actually like don't worry about that 
like you look amazing as you are and yeah having that communication being able to talk about it with your friends I think is so important yeah so true so true so I think it'd be cool just to anyone listening like and like we touched on it before but historically women have obviously been sexualized but then we've also been told to eat less and like I remember this is years ago the Vogue diet and we might have even talked about it on here and I think it was like a glass of Chardonnay um, and a slice of apple and then another glass of Chardonnay and half an egg and then like another glass of Chardonnay and that was the <laughs> diet for the day so you know we've been fed shit like that so obviously like we think we should eat less to perform better you know or look good so can you explain what actually happens to our bodies when we're under fueling and then you know the opposite too so when we're fueling right for our bodies like what happens yeah honestly it blows my mind that females and so like I say this in generalized, but so many women think we can function on fumes. Like if you're not eating or you're eating half an egg a day, like what do you actually think your body is running on? It yeah, blows my mind. And I feel like over the last few years, I've become a lot more blunt about it because initially I was like, oh, come on, like let's talk it through. And I'm like, no, are you kidding? Like, how do you think you're going to survive on an egg? Like, don't be stupid. Um, so when there's not enough energy available, the body can't perform all of its functions. So that just results in a range of health and performance consequences. And Liz mentioned red, red S before. And so that just stands for relative energy deficiency in sport, which technically means a state of athlete health where the functioning of multiple body systems and functions are impaired. This is like the official definition. Um, it is caused by a mismatch between energy intake from diet and the energy used in exercise. So it is a spectrum. Um, and I think it's important to understand as well that you might be eating what is considered a lot, but if you're training a lot, then you're still going to be in that mis mismatched section. So it's not just about under eating or you know, overtraining. It's just fine. It's that balance in between the two. Um, and you can push it one way or the other um, to create issues even if you think you're, you know, like you might not be training that much, but you're under eating, you're going to have issues or you might be eating a lot, but still training too much. You're going to have issues. So this can also change on day to day, depending on what you're eating, what time of the month it is, how much training you do and what else you do in the day. Um, so I love my car analogies. And one of my favorite ones is that, and something that I learned from experience is that my car doesn't go anywhere if it doesn't have any petrol in it. I literally ran out of petrol and it was really embarrassing. My dad gave me a massive lecture, but it's the same as our bodies. Like if we aren't putting fuel in our bodies, they're literally just not going to function. And before we even think about fueling for training, we actually need energy for every single process in our body. And if that's lacking, then things are going to start falling apart. So initially your body's actually really smart. It's going to try and slow things down to preserve energy so that you'll be able to survive and you're not going to die. Usually the first signal is an increase in fatigue that can't be budged with sleep or rest. And then you'll eventually start to see a drop in performance. So you won't be able to train at the same intensity as if you were fueled. Uh, one red flag for under fueling is if you can't get your heart rate up in training, no matter how hard you feel that you're working. So that's a really like good signal that you're not eating enough. If you're eating enough, your body is going to be able to perform at those higher intensities and you're going to get more out of your training sessions. You'll start to notice moodiness, depression, and anxiety all increases because your brain is literally just not getting enough fuel. Your hunger signals will skyrocket as your body's desperate for fuel to survive. So this is what often triggers that binge and restrict cycle, resulting in late night sugar cravings and those weekend binges where you can't stop eating. This is something I struggled a lot, which was probably my most disordered eating phase of my life. 
Um, and it was back when I was in that kind of bodybuilding. I went, I was really good until I started eating normal food again. And then it, we just went in this back and forth vicious cycle. And I think a lot of people can relate to this as well. So they restrict all week and then you end up binging because your body is literally so desperate for calories that it does not tell you that you're full and you end up being so uncomfortable, bloated, but then you're like, oh, I've stuffed up. I'll be better tomorrow. So you restrict your food even more. And then it just ends up in this vicious roller coaster. And the only way to break that cycle is to actually eat more consistently so that your body isn't so desperate for calories and nutrients. And then your hunger hormones and hunger signals will actually start to balance out and you can start to eat a little bit more intuitively. So when you consistently underfuel and you're trying to train, on top of what those things that you might see from the outside, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that you don't realize until it becomes a significant health issue. One big problem is your digestion. So when you under eat, your body goes into fight or flight state. In this state, your body takes blood away from your digestive system to provide nutrients and fuel to your peripheral body parts. So that's like to your arms and legs to help you run away from danger. So basically your body thinks that, you know, it's being chased by a lion back in the caveman days. The reduced blood flow slows down your digestion, which means that if you eat something, it's just going to sit in your stomach. It doesn't get digested as efficiently or as properly as it should. Um, and then this is what can also lead to constipation, bloating, and often gas because that food is just sitting there. You're not actually able to digest properly. And I've actually worked with quite a few women who thought they had heaps of food intolerances, but once we increased their total calories, their digestive issues cleared up like completely. Um, which I, at the time I was like, oh, like, let's just get your calories up. I didn't think it was going to make as that much of a difference because they had such bad issues. Um, but yeah, I was quite surprised. It's pretty good to know that if you eat more food, your digestive system improves as well. Um, and then the second biggest problem, which I know we speak about a lot is that downregulation of sex hormones. So there's two parts to this. One is the signaling from your brain and the other is literally just not having enough of the building blocks to build the hormones to produce what you need to, to be in a healthy hormone state. So when you're in a massive energy deficit and you have been for a long period of time, your brain stops signaling the production of sex hormones. So they just don't rise and fall and you'll eventually lose your menstrual cycle. If you're not eating enough, your liver can't make cholesterol and then you won't be able to produce those hormones. So then the important thing here as well is that it, you end up losing ovulation, which is the trigger to then get a period um, further through the cycle, which I feel like most people actually understand, which is awesome listening to this podcast. Um, it can result in the complete loss of the period or just dysfunction in the system. So a lot of hormonal issues can actually be resolved by eating a better diet and making sure you are actually fueling your body properly. Um, female hormones, it's really, it's, I think it's really interesting. They're so entwined with so many metabolic, physiological, and psychological processes. So if you're not eating enough and your body, your hormones aren't functioning well, there are so many different problems that can arise that can just kind of be fixed by eating better and feel, um, making sure that you are matching your, matching your intake to the energy output. Um, so on top of that, you can also have declines in bone health, immune function, and then often psychological issues too. So there's a lot that can go wrong when you're not eating enough um, and it can happen quite quickly. It doesn't take long to start seeing these kind of things. But like we said earlier is that it's not until it's a significant issue that people are actually taken to a doctor or, you know, realize that they need help. Um, but so many people are kind of in this mid range of under eating, but maybe their binge eating is keeping their calories up just high enough that it's not so bad. So 
it's trying to find that kind of balance with your food and consistency will actually make you feel a whole lot better. So increasing your intake or reducing your training just to match those um, means that you can quickly restart to resolve those issues. You'll notice a huge improvement in your mental capacity and your training intensity will also improve. And then on top of that, you'll actually be able to recover better. So you'll start making so much more progress and you'll actually get to enjoy food again too, which I think is a huge win. Yeah, love that. Thanks, Bex. It's so interesting. So many stats and facts. I feel like for a lot of women, and I I, I know from by working with a lot of these women, you know, we can rattle off all of these stats and facts and even telling my own story and what I went through hoping that women would like not go down that path. I think a lot of women still really struggle with eating more and being told to eat more, even though they know it's potentially going to help them get fitter and faster and recover better and potentially even prevent injuries. Like we can sit here and tell them that, but for someone who's actually struggling to even think about increasing their intake, it can be really daunting what is your kind of way of explaining this to your clients to help people take on more fuel and not be scared about it? So I definitely try to focus on how good they can feel and talk about how crap they feel at that time. Most people feel like if they're not eating enough are lacking energy, so they don't feel that great. And often I'll put it back on them and say, like, is what you're trying to do working for you? So a lot of the time people come to me, they're trying to eat 1200 calorie diets. And, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I can't stick to this. I'm like, well, maybe 1200 calories isn't what you should be eating. What if we tried eating more? Then let's see what happens. And most of the time they end up having better energy and feeling better. Um, so, yeah, if they say no, what they're doing isn't working for them, I'm only giving them an alternative and I leave it up to them. If they try it and they don't start feeling better, then I tell them they can go back to trying to start themselves. And I'll admit, and I'll admit I was wrong, but that hasn't happened yet. Everyone normally ends up feeling better, but I think kind of giving back into that power, it's like, oh, it's only an option. You know, why not try it? You don't have energy. Your training's not improving. You're moody. You've got depression and you're you know not enjoying food. So why not try this? It's an option. It's easy. Food is fun. It's good. You know, you enjoy eating food and it's likely you're going to feel a whole lot better. And then kind of getting past that initial barrier, then they're like, oh, okay, eating a little bit more does help. Maybe if I eat a little bit more and then that kind of snowballs and they start feeling better. Um, one of the other things I talk about as well, and I don't recommend counting calories, but it is really good to be aware of you know, how many calories someone needs. So for me, if I was to be lying in bed in a coma all day, my body would need 1400 calories just to survive. So someone eating a 1200 calorie diet is literally, my body could not, you know, most people could not even survive trying to eat off that and your body's really smart you can get away with it for a short period of time but long term that's when all those health things start falling apart so for me exercising and stuff I need to be eating two and a half to three thousand calories a day when you look at the you know weight loss meal prep plans or you know like the pre-made meals they're often like 400 to 500 calories each so if you're eating three of those, say they're 400, that's 1200 calories. Say maybe you have a snack and that's at 200 calories. You're still hardly hitting 500 calories in a day. That's nowhere near enough for your body to function. And so that's why I think it is like when you kind of break it down like that and you know show someone how much they're actually eating 
and how much their body needs, it's quite easy to go, oh, wow, I'm really not letting my body survive. And that is often that kind of trigger that's like, okay, I'll try eating more. Maybe I'll eat four 400 calorie meals a day and my snacks and then see how I feel. Um, but yeah, as much, it's like, it's hard because it's really, I don't want to, you know, tell people to eat, count calories and really, you know, watch what they're eating, but it's really important to actually understand, are you eating enough and how much are you putting into your food? Because a lot of the time as well, people try to increase the volume of their meals. So they fill it up with salad. They might be eating this massive bowl of salad, but it's actually only 300 calories, but they feel full because it's high volume. And understanding that is like, okay, well, actually, I might feel like I'm eating a lot, but maybe I need to have a look at some more calorie dense options to increase those calories um, and make me feel better and give me energy to actually train and feel good across the day. Yeah, it really is like you have to take that step yourself and put yourself in that situation to eat more food, to actually feel the benefit of it and then realize that you weren't eating enough. And yeah, I think for me, I went on the keto diet. Like I would have not touched pasta for years and I fucking love pasta. And it wasn't until I like obviously hit rock bottom, then came back from that, learn about my menstrual cycle and then actually started fueling myself better. I began to eat pasta again and now I probably eat it every second night. And like my performance just went skyrocketed, you know, like it's so hard to get your head around that until you actually do it. So if you are someone who's listening and you're feeling like, potentially there is this fear of consuming more calories or taking on more fuel, but you're potentially suffering from fatigue or your performance has plateaued. There is reasons behind that. Just put yourself in that situation for a moment and and feel the reward of it. And then I guarantee you won't look back. Mm. And just on that as well, I think it's important when you're making those decisions around your food to think about why you're making that decision. So if you're going into a shop and you're going, okay, I'm going to choose a salad because I want the low calorie option because I don't want to get fat is that really beneficial to helping you you know, race your fastest marathon or race your fastest half marathon? Our bodies need carbohydrates to fuel and for our muscles to work. So if you went in and your goal is to run a fast marathon or whatever, is choosing a salad to stay low calorie the best option for you? And then start challenging those beliefs. And like you said before, like, everyone, we all, you know, it's ingrained in us to think that we need to be smaller to be valued. But if we can recognize those thoughts coming up and challenge them and work through them and make different choices and not take actions to, you know, buy into that narrative, then that's how you're really going to see that change and start feeling better. Um, But it is hard. I know it's hard because I challenge those thoughts as well on the daily. So, you know, we're all educated and we talk about it and we find it hard. So if anyone is struggling with those thoughts, it's really important just focus, you know, think about what your goals are and think about what you're trying to achieve. And are you making choices for making yourself feel better? Or are you buying into that narrative that you're trying to be smaller and less significant? But yeah, take up space, be important. It's good. So true. And that's why it is amazing to have people like you and our dietitian Sarah, who people can reach out to because like you touched on it before about like calorie counting and how for some people it can work and it can be beneficial because you can track how much you're eating and how much you need to eat which for some people is great but for some people it's super triggering and that's why you have experts like Bex and Sarah at your hands and fingertips that can help you do that in the background help you you know take those first steps to start eating more and then slowly break down those fears of like calorie counting and yeah keeping track of you know calories in calories out because I know I know people that I have talked to who have a real fear about that and they 
mm. you know, they track their exercise because they see how many calories they've burnt. Um, so yeah, that's why it's just what you and and people helping women who um, you know, be their best and uh eat enough fuel are incredible. And you should be really proud of how many women you probably help. Just one more thing on that with so many people track their calorie how many calories they've burned on their watches, but something to think about is like that doesn't include how much energy your body uses overnight to recover and rebuild and repair your muscles. So if you're eating to what your watch says you've done across the day, first of all, it's not hugely accurate, but also it's missing out on a bunch of other calories and energy that you need overnight. Um, So yeah, that's a good, if you're following that, then you probably want to increase your food and see how you feel. (laughs) Probably by heaps too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Love it. Such good, such good wisdom. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit um, about your PhD. And I read the title out in the intro, but can you tell us about how you decided to choose this topic? Um, so like most of my career life choices, I kind, it kind of fell on my lap. I came back to New Zealand because of COVID and studied a master's in sports science and just went down the path of focusing on female athletes and how that, you know, how females differ. And then I did quite well in my master's research and my, I was like, oh, maybe I could do a PhD. My supervisor were talking about it, but I was like, I'm only going to do it if I get a scholarship because I don't want to do it if um, I have to pay for it. And I missed the deadline for applying for the scholarship. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, there goes that chance. I'd actually got myself excited about it. And then my supervisor emailed me and was like, hey, I've got this guy that I really want you to meet. I think he might have a good opportunity for you. And so I was like, okay, no idea what this was about. Sat down with him, told him all about my work with Femi, all about what my master's and everything. And he just goes, well, this is the title of the PhD that I have a scholarship for. I just need to find the right candidate for it. And he was like, I think you're the right one. Do you want a couple of days to think about it? And I was just like, no, this is like, this is what I want to be doing. Um, And so luckily it is involved with High Performance Sport New Zealand as well. And so it's just, it's exactly what I wanted. I just stuffed up and didn't get the deadline and then somehow stumbled across even better opportunity than I could have imagined. Um, And so, yeah, it's just going to be focusing on elite female athletes. And at the moment, we're still kind of in the, planning phases but it is going to be a lot more about intervention so actually applying okay let's do this type of training at this time of the month and see what happens and coach women and I know through like my athletes and I know you guys are the same like our females do see better progress it'll be cool to be able to do it in a laboratory like academic setting um, and see what happens just having those different um, confounding factors and everything accounted for and having a control group to really provide that you know good academic literature that says like yes women are different we need to be treated differently we're not just small men we can't just be treated like that so exciting we're so so lucky to have someone like you on our team doing the research I think well I know that we definitely couldn't be doing what we do at FEMI without incredible researchers and minds like yourself and even Claire Badenhurst our physiologist who's on our team too so I just want to say a massive thank you because you're not only helping us at FEMI, but you're helping so many women as well. And just the future of females in sport is just so exciting to think, you know, how much more we're going to know about our own bodies and minds in the future. What are your hopes, I guess, for the next decade around women in sport and women's research in sport? 
Um, I obviously want to see more research done on women, by women, and for women. I think having that different attitude towards the research is really, really important. Um, and yeah, I one other thing I like speaking about is that women's sport needs to be like its own entity. It's not just women getting a chance to do what the men can do. We need our own research and we need our own opportunities to reflect women's sport on its own. Um, and the current research, like we've said, it's always on a typical subject. So the fact that all our previous literature is gendered and it has that fact has not been disclosed, I think that needs to change. And yeah, just like research that is really woman, female focused. It's funny. I actually kept getting told off in my master's research. Like whenever I'd hand in a draft, they're like, you're too emotional. Like <laughs> you're too passionate. Please dull down the emotional side of it. And I was like, oh, this is really hard. But um, so yeah, just more stuff for women, by women, and just with females in mind. And then I also think there needs to be a massive reduction in the stigma. It's so, it's hard to bring up, I think, you know, the females and the women that I interact with, we can all speak about it openly. But as soon as you go to someone who has never been coached by a woman or hasn't been exposed to this kind of thing, they don't know, they don't even know about their own physiology. And that breaks my heart. You know, I talk to women who are so heartbroken that they have depression two weeks of the month and the doctors just write them off as woman problems. And it's, they don't even realize that, yes, your hormones do impact that. You know, like it's just that people don't, so many women don't even understand what their physiology is doing. And I think that that just needs to be more common knowledge and it needs to be accepted. And I think males just need to get over themselves and accept that it needs to be something that is spoken about. Like we make up half the population. It's stupid that it doesn't even like get considered or talked about. Yeah, couldn't agree more. <laughs> and we love the passion too. So keep bringing the passion. I think passion is what drives change. So we need that passion. So don't down at all. We have two quick fire questions to wrap up today. The first one being, if you went back to your 15 year old self or your younger self, what would you tell her? I'd tell her to eat more. <laughs> Honestly, like looking back, it wasn't that I thought I was fat. I just didn't like food and if I ate more I think it would have really changed my running career <laughs> I love how simple it is and it's probably the same for so many of us yep 100% I feel like I should have told that to my 15 round self because I think that I was in the depths of my eating disorder at about 15 so needed to be slapped with that message a few times <laughs> um and then last one what is your purpose on mother earth at the moment because we were talking last week and feel like it's an ever-evolving thing so yeah what do you feel like it is at the moment um definitely with the opportunity I keep getting with my PhD and with my research is definitely just to keep empowering women and to yeah just keep driving that change to bring female sport into its own I don't know what the word is, just to bring, bring into its own. That's <laughs> I love that. Well, you're definitely doing that. And we're so, so lucky to have you on our team, Bex. You are a wealth of knowledge. You have so much experience and um, education behind you as well. And it's so great to kind of bring you on the podcast and spread that education to everyone. I'm sure so many people would have taken so much away from this conversation today. And if you do want to get in touch with Bex, we will be taking it into our show notes. So you can go and give her a follow um, and send her a message. I'm sure she wouldn't mind any questions being thrown her way. But yeah, thanks, Bex. We're so grateful for you. And for the listeners, we will be back in your ears next week for another pod just with Esther and myself. But in the meantime, if you do want to get in touch with us, you can head to our Instagram at femi.co or to our website, femi.co. But yeah, thanks, Bex. You're awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs>
Thank you.